is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here with us today. We got a new bonus episode for all of our patrons. Heath, tell us about it. Yeah, we just released an episode about the case of Carrie Farver, which is really, really interesting. There's definitely some stalking going on in this case. There's a part in this episode where a little girl sees a ghost but really it's a stalker in someone's home. So if you're inter- if that sounds interesting to you, which it sounds interesting to me, definitely check it out. Head over to patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast and uh, start listening. We now have over 38 full-length bonus episodes on there, so check them out. And by the way, everybody who just listens to the show, we appreciate you guys so much. I know we talk about bonus episodes a lot, but we really appreciate just everybody who listens to the show and everybody who reviews the show too. We still read those. And we've gotten some really, really nice reviews lately. So thank you so much, everybody, for doing that. We appreciate all of you. All right, guys, I think we're ready to start this episode. This is episode 116 of Going West. So let's get into it. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes that you're going to find interesting. Jordan is super charismatic and well-voiced, so I loved listening to his recent episode with Susan Casey called Unraveling Mysteries in the Ocean's Darkest Depths. It was so creepy and interesting, and he goes across every category with other episodes like Romance Twister, My Mister Once Dated My Sister, or his monthly Skeptical Sunday episodes about controversial topics from crystal healing to cannabis to Ouija boards. There is something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. In 1992, a 27-year-old airport employee and aspiring cartoonist left work to grab she and her co-workers some food for their overnight shift, but she never returned. When her body was found days later in the trunk of her own car, it was clear that she had been brutally murdered. The case went cold for over a year, but when her diary was discovered, disturbing accounts were unlocked. 
This is the story of Susan Taraskowitz. Susan Taraskowitz, who went by Sue, was born on February 13, 1965, to parents Marlene and Ronald, along with her older sister Deborah and younger brother Ronnie Jr. She was raised in a pink ranch house in Saugus, Massachusetts, which is a small working-class town in the greater Boston area in Essex County that's known to have a friendly and tight-knit community. Her father, Ronald, worked as a tractor-trailer salesman, while her mother, Marlene, worked as a supermarket produce clerk. Growing up, Susan was known to be very creative, and when she began attending Saugus High School, very athletic, playing soccer and her big love, which was roller skating. After graduating in 1983, she went on to attend Salem State College, which is in, you guessed it, the beautiful Salem, Massachusetts, just a stone throw away from her hometown. Then she transferred to North Shore Community College, which was also close by. And then finally, Massachusetts College of Art and Design, known as Mass Art in Boston. The reason she headed off to art school was because she dreamed of becoming a cartoonist, And her favorite cartoon of all time was Snoopy. But she also wanted to be a firefighter and eventually received high marks on the firefighter placement exam, putting her eighth on the reserve list for the Swampscott, Massachusetts Fire Department. So she she was very motivated. She wanted to do a lot of stuff in her life and she was not wasting any time. So while she was going to college, she was still figuring out exactly what she wanted to do. And she got herself a job at the Boston Logan International Airport. She began working for Northwest Airlines, first in boarding, and then she switched positions to cleaning the planes. Her favorite thing to do was to de-ice the planes, which is something that needs to be done to aircrafts when snow and ice has accumulated on the exterior. And the way that this is done is by getting into this big machine that sits you up level with the plane, and then you spray this chemical mixture on the aircraft itself. So she loved doing that and really enjoyed her job in general, And even though a big part of her wanted to be a cartoonist, Susan really applied herself to her job at the airport and she tried to work her way up. Like I said, she was extremely hardworking and at one point in her 20s, she had attempted to get a promotion and felt that she was unfairly overlooked for the position since she was a woman. So she fought within the company for three whole years until she won her case and received this promotion. And then she became a ground crew supervisor and she was actually the first woman to hold this position in the history of the Logan-Boston International Airport. So really, I mean, this is kind of a sign of the times. Back in the 80s, there was a lot of fragile masculinity going around and a lot of misogyny in the workplace. And so it was very, very hard for a woman to be in a managerial position. Exactly. And as we kind of unfold this story, you guys will see how that, what Heath was just saying, has such a big part to this actual story and how big of an issue it proved to be for Susan. So while Susan was working this job, she was living at home with her parents. And it worried her mom a great deal that she was doing such a tough job, like we said, especially as a woman in the late 80s and early 90s. But Susan took pride in her job and would always come home and tell her mom all about her day, one time even telling her mom that she had handled 100,000 bags that day alone. So she never complained about it. She always just kind of came home and said, oh my God, my day, you know, 
kind of laughing about how many bags she had to handle. She got to meet a lot of people working that job for the five years she did, including a lot of actors that she loved. And she even had this little autograph book that countless people signed over the years of her working at the airport. And she'd always excitedly kind of tell her folks about who she met. And not only did her work ethic make her great at this job, but she was known to be very friendly and she was very personable. To give you a better idea of the type of person she was, she was the kind of gal who made Halloween costumes for the kids in the neighborhood and made Easter baskets for them and her friends. She was very creative and had talent for a lot of different things. Most of Susan's shifts were overnight or on busy weekends, so she didn't always get to spend quality time with her family or friends, but she would still see her parents in passing, and they always knew she was home based on whether or not her work clothes were in a laundry heap outside of her bedroom door. So in June of 1992, Susan's mother Marlene's 50th birthday came, and their family of five got to celebrate all together by heading down to a nice restaurant in Boston. At this time, Susan was 27 years old, and it was the last time Marlene and Ronald would get to spend quality time with Susan before something unthinkable would happen. Three months after Marlene's birthday, on Saturday, September 12th, 1992, Susan had a regular scheduled shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. Marlene remembers that a few hours before she had to go to work, she seemed very impatient and kind of upset about something. That same day, she had some close friends come over to discuss wedding plans for her sister Deborah's upcoming nuptials. That was about five months later in February of 1993, but for some reason, she just wasn't really in a good mood. Susan's mom remembers that before her shift, she kept saying that she needed to get to work along with, quote, I know they're going to give me a hard time, but I got to go do it. Then after 10 p.m., Susan left her family home in her work clothes and headed for the airport. She clocked in as usual and around 1 a.m., so three hours into her shift, Susan offered to go grab some sandwiches for her and her coworkers. With that, Susan got into her car and drove off, but she never returned to work. Weirdly enough, her coworkers that were supposedly waiting for their sandwiches never reported her missing or went out looking for her, but they did punch her time card out when her shift ended at 7 a.m. And this is really bizarre to me because it's the middle of the night, so I know she was used to working overnights, but I feel like my initial thought as her coworker would be, Was she tired and got into an accident? Because she was a supervisor and was known to be very responsible and actually cared about her job. So why would her coworkers not worry about her and then just punch out her time card like nothing happened? Yeah, I mean, I could see if she was like an unreliable coworker and she had missed shifts on occasion or something like that. But I mean, she's she is the supervisor and and she's going to go get you guys food. So you're waiting for your sandwiches at the very least. Right. I mean, because it's not like, oh, uh, you know, I'm going to leave work and I got to go do this other thing. It's like, hey, I'm going to leave work and go get you guys sandwiches. I'll be right back sort of thing. Exactly. When that Sunday morning passed, Marlene Taroskowitz didn't see a pile of laundry outside of her daughter's bedroom door, indicating that she hadn't gotten home from her shift. She wasn't too worried about this, though, and just kind of figured that Susan had to work overtime and that she'd be home later. And again, Susan worked such odd hours, Marlene wasn't used to crossing paths with Susan every day, who was also 27 years old, so she carried on with her Sunday. One of Susan's coworkers was having a baby shower that day, and even though she was expected to be there, Susan didn't show up. But still, none of her coworkers reported her missing. 
The following day, Monday, September 14th, 1992, so over 24 hours after Susan was last seen, her sister Deborah called their mom Marlene at work to explain that one of Susan's co-workers had called her to tell her that Susan didn't show up for her Monday shift. And on top of that, none of the co-workers had seen her since her shift on Saturday night. Now that Marlene was talking to Deborah about it, she became incredibly worried because she hadn't seen her daughter since before her shift on Saturday. So immediately, Marlene left work and ran down to the Saugus police station to report her daughter missing. When she arrived and explained to the police that she believed her daughter to be missing under uncertain circumstances, the police told her something she never imagined would happen to her and her family. The police had found their daughter and she was dead. The Tarasquids family knew the local police since they lived there their whole lives, so the chief of police who sat her down knew Susan and the family. He explained that on that same morning, a passerby had come across a car outside of an auto body shop in Revere, Massachusetts, and noticed a pool of blood under the trunk of the car. Since this was obviously a very disturbing and concerning sight, the person called the police. When they arrived, they opened the trunk to find 27-year-old Susan Taraskowitz in the trunk, beaten and stabbed to death. Susan was found inside of the trunk of her own Toyota with the money for the sandwiches still on her, meaning that she hadn't picked them up before she had been murdered. The police were still in the process of positively IDing her body, which is why they hadn't called Marlene by the time she had come down to the station, even though she had stopped in not long after Susan's body was found anyway. As we said, she was found in Revere, which is the coastal town right next to Susan's hometown of Saugus, where she lived with her family. It's also just outside of Boston, so it's only minutes away from the airport where she worked. And the auto body shop where her car was at was on Route 1A, for those who know the area and want more of an idea. And this state highway is the road leading directly to the Boston Logan Airport, so it would have likely been the road she took to grab sandwiches. Susan's family was obviously absolutely horrified when they found out what happened, and they just couldn't wrap their heads around why anyone would want to kill Susan since she was so incredibly well-liked. The only thing they could think of, as well as the police, was that this was just a random act of violence and that she wasn't specifically targeted. But what would the motive be? Since she was found with money on her, this likely was not a robbery gone wrong. Police didn't have any solid leads on this crime, and it being 1992, there really wasn't any DNA the investigators could work with, so this case just went cold for over a year. The Taraskowitz family had to try to move on, which was near impossible to do. Susan's sister Deborah's wedding occurred the year after Susan's murder, and to try to include Susan in the wedding photos, they had a portrait of Susan hung up behind them. Susan's mom, Marlene, had a very difficult time going into her daughter's room. You know, it would just be too sad to see her massive Snoopy doll collection, along with everything else left by Susan, who was just going to work as usual that day, not knowing she was never going to return home again. But over a year after Susan's murder, in late 1993, the holidays were approaching, and Marlene wanted to grab something from Susan's room to kind of put out in the house so a piece of her could be a part of the various other decorations. But that's when she came upon Susan's diary. And after deciding to look inside, she learned some disturbing information.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volix XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms 
and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face. But now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. So just to recap, it was now December of 1993, and Susan's case had gone cold. Everyone almost assumed it was just some kind of horrible random act of violence, a wrong place at the wrong time type of situation. But when Marlene came across her daughter's diary while looking for something in her room, she decided to open it up and peek inside. But inside the diary, Marlene was horrified to find terrifying recounts of the sexual harassment that Susan faced at work. Marlene worried about Susan working at that job for many different reasons, but she didn't know her daughter had been dealing with anything this awful. In this diary, Susan documented multiple incidents of sexual harassment from her male co-workers, along with just general harassment for no reason at all. On one occasion, Someone had smashed Susan's radio completely unprovoked in the break room where a bunch of her co-workers were around to see it. And another time, someone left a graffiti drawing for her to see that was of a coffin with her name on it. And this was found inside of her locker at work, almost like some kind of daunting message or foreshadowing. And Marlene couldn't believe this because Susan had never been one to really gossip or share much of what was going on in her life personally. So... When she seemed stressed or irritable, she wouldn't tell her parents why, and they didn't pry. And as we know, on the night she was murdered, she was very irritable at home, and her mom noticed this, and Susan just said she had to go to work. The only thing that Susan did mention about her job was that the men in her department didn't like having a woman as a supervisor, and they gave her a hard time for it. For example, she would instruct her team to do certain things during their shifts, And they would often disobey and then just kind of not carry through with the tasks, meaning that Susan would be the one to do it herself. But Susan really loved what she did, so she put up with it. Her mom remembers Susan saying, I'm not going to let them get to me. So she just wasn't going to give in to their BS. But in this diary, it detailed situations that were much worse than her family had imagined. On the page where Susan wrote about the radio smashing incident... She also noted that she confronted the guy who smashed it, a 32-year-old man named Robert Bobby Brooks. And his response was, What's the matter? Is your little punk boyfriend going to beat me up? He's lucky I didn't kill him. And this boyfriend that Bobby's talking about was someone new that Susan was seeing who also worked at the airport. Previously, Susan and Bobby reportedly had a brief fling, and when Susan broke it off before she became supervisor he became irate. So you can only imagine how much angrier he became when he had to take orders from her on a daily basis. Susan told her boyfriend about the radio incident to which he confronted Bobby about it and told him he had to buy Susan a new one. 
And after this, Susan and her boyfriend were met with more threats from Bobby. Around this same time, the harassment against Susan got much worse. She would get anonymous threatening phone calls at all hours, and even her car was vandalized. So someone had keyed her car and slashed her tires. Also, her boyfriend's car was vandalized, and then eventually, her coworkers who kind of had her back, they got their cars vandalized too. Susan wrote about all these incidents in her diary, along with other graffiti that targeted her and various other issues at work. A big issue with her work was that while these things were happening, the company usually told Susan things like, just let it go and don't let it bother you. And we know this because it was noted in her diary as well. So it seems her job just really wasn't taking the harassment seriously at all. I mean, nowadays, stuff like that would never fly. I mean, there's so so much HR going on within big companies and corporations like this. Those dudes would be fired in a heartbeat. Yeah, this is such a devastating part of this story because she tried so hard to make the company realize that she was being treated poorly. And this is not something that anybody in the workplace or anywhere should have to deal with. Like, You should not have to go into your job and worry about being bullied. And so this wasn't out of line at all or tattletale you know, of Susan to go off and tell the company because she should be able to come into the job she loves and get her work done in peace. Like there's no reason she should be messed with. Yeah. And it just honestly, it just sounds like these guys are just all around shitheads and they're just sad that a woman is telling them what to do. Yeah, it's going to get a lot worse. After reading a few entries of Susan's journal, her mom Marlene took it to the investigators, hoping it would get the ball rolling on the case again. While investigators looked more into Susan's co-workers, the Taraskowitz family sued Northwest Airlines, who merged with Delta in 2008, for sexual harassment, and nearly two years later, in 1995, a settlement was reached and the family was given $75,000 as a payout as well as $250,000 for Susan's reward fund. The family really wasn't after the money, though. All they truly wanted were answers to this case and justice for Susan, because it was clear that Susan wasn't having her basic needs met at work, which was her safety, and that it could have cost her life if her murder was indeed attached to these incidents at work. And then came the thought that Susan was looked at as a snitch at work for kind of going to higher-ups whenever anything like what was written in her diary came up. Which again, you're not a snitch for trying to make sure you don't get bullied at work. That's so stupid. Yeah, that's just a dumb thought. So, okay, so the reason why this is brought up is because one year before Susan's murder, several of her coworkers at Northwest Airlines were caught and convicted of running a credit card theft ring where they would steal credit cards in various luggages. This ring included at least 37 people, 10 of which were bag handlers in Susan's department, and they netted over $7 million, which is insane. That's a shit ton of money. Yeah, that's a lot of money to steal from people's credit cards. So when all the news broke on this, Susan's family was shocked, and they asked her if she knew anything about it, and Susan stated that she didn't at all, and she wasn't a part of it either. Some of the harassers that were named in Susan's diaries, no shock here because they're shitty people, were a part of this con. And as it turns out, the ringleader of this whole scheme was a 32-year-old man named Joseph Nuzo, who had been working with Northwest Airlines for a few years at that point. So let's talk about this guy. Joseph Nuzo had a long-standing issue with Susan. In April of 1989, three and a half years before the murder, 
and over a couple years before Susan was even supervisor, Joseph Nuzo got into a fist fight at work with a couple other employees. Susan saw this happen and she tried to break up the fight before anything bad happened and anyone did anything that they would regret, which angered Joseph. So he called her a slur and the company got involved. And after this, Joseph Nuzo was suspended from work for six months without pay. He very openly blamed Susan and during his suspension, he vandalized Susan's car as well as her boyfriend's and made all those threatening phone calls to her. And it was after Joseph Nuzo returned to work six months later in early 1990 that he and some of his co-workers started this credit card ring. And another main player was none other than Bobby Brooks, who again was the main worker who harassed Susan. And Bobby had pointed out to Joseph Nuzo that Susan was a rat, and he was worried that she was the one who told investigators about the credit card ring. This, however, was actually completely false. She had nothing to do with the investigation, and she wasn't even asked to be a part of it because none of it had anything to do with her. In 1991, an interagency task force looked into the credit card scheme themselves and launched a full investigation. One month before Susan's murder, in August of 1992, Joseph Nuzo was officially fired from the airline and became the main target of this grand jury investigation. Just days before Susan's murder, Joseph Nuzo had talked to his friends about how serious the investigation was and how furious he was that someone snitched on their operation, and he told them that he believed it was Susan who had done so. In August of 1992, when the height of the credit card scheme investigation was occurring, which again was just weeks before Susan's murder, Bobby Brooks applied for reassignment, and he was quickly transferred to another job in Minneapolis, Minnesota, on August 25th. And as a reminder, Susan's murder occurred in the early morning hours of September 13th. Now, you may be asking if Bobby Brooks was ever questioned in Susan's murder, and the answer is yes. But since investigators weren't aware of all the harassment that Susan endured at the hands of Bobby and Joseph Nuzo, for that matter, he wasn't heavily pursued. But he did endure an hour-long interview where he essentially just downplayed his relationship with Joseph Nuzo and gave an alibi for the night of the murder. His excuse was that he was working until 11 p.m. handling luggage at the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport on the night of September 12th. So he said his shift ended roughly two hours before Susan was likely murdered. And for reference, Minneapolis is a 20-hour drive from Boston and a three-hour flight. So him being directly involved in the murder appeared pretty unlikely. However, after the diary came out, investigators looked into this and discovered that Bobby wasn't even working that night. And although in his interview with police in 1992, he said he hadn't been in contact with Joseph Nuzo the weekend the murder occurred, phone records proved otherwise. Uh Uh-oh. Investigators found that Bobby and Joseph had indeed spoken on the phone that very night meaning it was entirely possible that Bobby had been in Boston that night and he and Joseph Nuzo got rid of Susan because they thought she had told investigators about their credit card scheme. And apparently around 1 a.m., so right before she was going to leave to get the sandwiches, Susan received a phone call from someone who wanted to meet her, but none of her coworkers are said to know who that person was, just that it seemed like it was maybe someone she trusted. In 1994, Bobby Brooks' testimony actually helped convict Joseph Nuzo 
on various charges regarding the credit card scheme, but Bobby himself pled guilty to conspiracy to commit mail theft and credit card fraud. Because Bobby helped prove Joseph Nuzzo's role in the scheme, he was rewarded and didn't serve time for his role and was merely put on probation, whereas Joseph Nuzzo was sentenced to three years in prison. So this case is still unsolved. So much of the information that investigators have has not been released, including any information regarding the questioning of Susan's other coworkers, as well as Joseph Nuzzo. What we do know is that in 1996, a Boston grand jury looked into Susan's death, and this is when investigators looked into Bobby Brooks' original alibi for the night of the murder and discovered that he had been lying. Bobby reiterated that Joseph Nuzzo blamed Susan for his suspension from work, remember, the six-month suspension, as well as for blowing the whistle about the fraud case, which again was not true. And when it was proved by time card records and long-distance phone records that Bobby lied both under oath and during his interview with police in 1992 about Susan's murder, he explained that he didn't intentionally lie and he just misremembered details. However, because of these lies, he faced three counts of perjury. In 1998, he was sentenced to 15 months in prison for obstruction of justice in her murder. Bobby Brooks's lawyer stated, There's nothing that even remotely ties the murder to anybody at Northwest. And yes, technically, this is true. Considering there's no real physical evidence in this case, it really can't even be tied to anyone. So all we have here is circumstantial evidence. But if you ask me, it's some pretty good circumstantial evidence. But Susan's family's lawyer stated, There's a striking overlap between the sexual harassment case and the credit card ring. And those are two avenues, clearly, through which the murder investigation has to be viewed. And regarding this, Marlene has stated, I just know, I truly feel, that someone over at Northwest knows about Sue's murder. I believe Susan probably knew who did it. More evidence of harassment surrounding Susan has since been uncovered by detectives, including a large drawing inside a luggage hold of Susan naked with her legs spread, graffiti at the Boston Logan International Airport men's bathroom that is supposed to be Susan performing oral sex, and multiple graffitied slurs directly about Susan, including, pardon my French, slut, bitch, and whore, written on her locker. And it was also known that the break room for Susan's team was described as a hell zone, with like centerfolds of naked women on the employee fridge, and copies of Hustler magazine and Playboy magazine on the tables, and in other reports made by fellow co-workers, some of the male co-workers under Susan were known to be involved in such incidents including exposing themselves, rubbing their genitals on a co-worker's sandwich, and urinating in another employee's coffee thermos. And these were the men that were on Susan's team. These were the men that were known to harass her which is terrifying and disgusting and horrible, and it just goes to show you what she dealt with and why she told the company about the harassment she was dealing with because these are the dudes that were harassing her. It's just so sad that this company really didn't take anything that she said seriously, but she definitely deserved much better than these asshole coworkers. I agree. And I feel like the person who murdered Susan was, without a doubt in my mind, someone who had previously worked with her or someone who is still working at Northwest Airlines. 
I think it seems pretty obvious that Joseph Nuzzo, and likely Bobby Brooks as well, are behind this, especially since Bobby lied that he was at work and said that he and Joseph weren't even friends, yet they spoke the night that Susan was murdered. And I also know that Susan worked with some really shady people. I mean, obviously, since 10 people on Susan's team alone were part of this massive credit card scandal. So there could have been others involved as well, or at least someone still working at the airport who could tip Joseph and or Bobby off about when Susan was working and that she was leaving to go get sandwiches, unless Bobby or Joseph were the one to call her at 1 a.m., I mean, I just don't know, and, and they never figured that out. But a big reason I think Joseph is the one behind Susan's murder versus Bobby being the main suspect is because of what Bobby did to help investigators nail Joseph Nuzo in the credit card fraud case. Like, I just don't see him doing that if he was the one to actually murder Susan. I think he may have helped, but I have a feeling the murder itself has Joseph's name written all over it. He didn't want to be pinned for, you know, the big hit, so... He said, you know what, I'll work with you guys so that I can get, you know, a lesser sentence, which was just the probation. I don't think that makes him a good person at all. I still think he's a shitty person. Oh, he's a total shitbag. Yeah, so to me, that doesn't say whether or not he murdered Susan or not. I just, you know. I don't mean because he's a good dude, so he didn't do it. I mean, like, if he had been the one to kill Susan and Joseph knew about it, Joseph could have easily turned around and said, oh, yeah? You're saying I'm the ringleader. Well, guess what? You murdered Susan. Right, right. I do see what you're saying there. But I mean, I don't know. Either is possible. Anything is possible. But I really think it had to be either one of them, both of them, or a co-worker. Susan's funeral was held shortly after her body was found at a local church in Saugus, Massachusetts, where her family and friends paid their respects. And shortly thereafter, she was buried at Woodlawn Cemetery. About seven months before Susan's death, she was able to meet Charles Schultz, who is the cartoonist behind Charlie Brown and the Peanuts, so of course Snoopy too, who, remember, was Susan's favorite. And he actually drew Snoopy on her gravestone, so that was a pretty amazing thing of him to do. Yeah, I thought that was really, really sweet when I read that. We posted photos of her all over our socials, and we have one photo of her with, like, a giant Snoopy guy, like, in a costume, so... He was definitely her favorite, so that would have meant a lot to her. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool thing. And Susan's poor mother, Marlene, who is still alive today, has endured so much loss. So Susan passed in 1992 at the age of 27, as we know. Then her younger brother and Marlene's only son, Ronnie Jr., passed at the age of 35 in 2007. And then four years later in 2011... Marlene's longtime husband and father of her children, Ronald, passed away at the age of 69. She's such a sweet lady, and we also posted a photo of her from a few years ago um, after she did an interview with the Boston Globe, and she said, I will get justice for Susan. Susan wasn't perfect, but she was a loving and very giving girl. She would do anything for you. The only thing Susan wanted was to be a supervisor on the ramp to help people who traveled. I know there are people out there who know about Susan's murder. I know that Susan's murder can and will be solved. I want to bring peace to my family and all of her friends. As long as my health holds, I will be out there fighting for Susan. If you have any information about this case, please call the Massachusetts State Police at 
617-727-8817. And according to the internet, Joseph Nuzo is still alive and in his 60s and I think is living in Peabody, Massachusetts. So he remained in the area after he got out of prison in 1998. And Susan's family also lives in that area. So you can only imagine how they feel about it all and how hard it is knowing that someone has gotten away with Susan's murder for almost 29 years. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And next week, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. This is such a tragic story, and it's also really so sad to watch interviews of her mom, who who did an interview most recently last September, I think, in 2020. She is still really wanting answers. So please share this case. Tell your friends about it. Someone's got to know something. Yeah, definitely. I feel like this case is so solvable. I mean... <laughs> You almost know who, who, you know, did the deed. And uh, I think that that person needs to be brought to justice. Completely agree. So thank you guys so much for tuning in today. And thank you so much to all of our patrons this past week who have joined our Patreon. So we're recording this episode a little bit in advance. So if you joined over the weekend, we will give you a shout out next week. So first and foremost, thank you so much to Kinsey, Christy, Rebecca, Allison, and Ronald. Big thanks going out to Christina, Jennifer, Olivia, and Jasmine. And then thank you so much to Olivia, Heidi, Lisa, and Logan. And last but not least, big thanks going out to Gary, Colleen, and Gretchen. You guys are amazing. Thanks so much for subscribing. We, uh, we love having you over there in the community. We love Patreon, and uh, it's a blast. Yeah, hope you guys are enjoying the new episode. And again, if you want our latest episode on Carrie Farver and you want 37 other full-length bonus episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast. And they're ad-free. All right, guys, so for everybody out there in the world, cheerio and don't be a stranger. 